Bibles to Exodus 28th chapter and the fourth verse. Exodus 28 verse 4. We're going to continue our study there. Of, uh, we saw first the tabernacle. Now we are taking a look at the uh, high priest. And this is a pretty good description of what he looks like. And we're going to go through it and get some analysis of the various symbolism, uh, the symbolism that is there. Before we begin, let's take a moment just for prayer to get ourselves ready to study the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your love and mercy and grace and all your blessings, all your tests. Father, we ask that indeed tonight as we open up your Word that you would give us some insight into this uh, great picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, the great High Priest, that was uh, brought about and manifested through the high priest of Israel. So, Father, I pray we will correctly handle the types and the symbols and be able to be able to glean that which is really important. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in the first verse of Exodus 28, it says, Then cause to draw near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him. In other words, uh, assemble them. And from among the sons of Israel to serve it... That is actually to serve the tabernacle that he's talking about as priest for me. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. So what we have is a spiritual leadership of the nation, the descent through Aaron. That's where the tribe is going to uh, descend from the tribe of Levi. Moses and Aaron were both the tribe of Levi. Aaron had the high priesthood. In verse 2, it says, And you shall manufacture holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. And uh, this is pretty neat because what he's saying and the way he's emphasizing it here is these are not to be duplicated. The priest, uh, below the the high priest, are going to have their own garments. But the garments of the high priest are not to be duplicated. Verse 3, And you yourself shall speak to all the wise ones of heart, That's literally what the Hebrew says. And that is uh, basically says that they've got some some talent about them. Whom I have filled it with a wise spirit. This heart, the filled it there is the heart with a wise spirit. That they manufacture Aaron's garments to sanctify him to serve it as priest for me. So that's the what he's asking for. He wants the best. All this came from the offering that was taken up from the sons of Israel, and we saw that uh, earlier. Now, verse 4 says, And these are the garments which they shall make. Now, I change this because I'm a creature of habit. The word is asa. It's a Hebrew 101 word, one of the first words you use anywhere, and you Start looking at what's the difference between Asa and Bara. And Asa is to make something out of something, and Bara is to make something out of nothing. And so I think it is best translated as manufacture, to take the pieces and put together something else. And so you're going to see, I'm not going to mention it every time, but all the way through this chapter, this word Asa keeps popping up, and I'll just translate it manufacture as it, as it does. Uh, a breast piece, and this is a koshen, C-H-O-S-H-E-N. Uh, it is, a, I'd, I'd rather use the word breastplate that is found here. 
and it basically it becomes a pouch into which the Urim and Thummim were placed. And it had 12 gems, uh, gemstones mounted on it. Now it's going to look something like this. Now, uh, if you look at these, and we'll go through and analyze them, the little writing up there, which you probably can't see from back there, is Ruby and Simeon, Levi. It's got the names of the 12 tribes on it, but this is obviously done in English, and if it would have been the breastplate, it would have been done in Hebrew, and it wouldn't look anything like that. But I think it's a fairly good uh, rendering that is there. It says, And they shall make a breastplate and an ephod. Now this ephod is a, a armless outer garment. So that's this blue uh, area, not not the blue thing, but this apron-looking thing on the front of the high priest. They shall make this armless outer garment called the ephod. That's just a transliteration out of the Hebrew. And a tunic of checkered work. This is the word gathonet plus tashbata. And it is uh, best looked at as an interwoven work. It is a heavy-duty piece of embroidery. Uh, when I was in uh, Ghana a long time ago, not that long ago, but <clears throat> when I was in Ghana, they are very skilled weavers with what they do. They make a thing called the kenta cloth, which got totally misrepresented by a political party here a few years back. But the kenta cloth is, is a piece of cloth that they make that's absolutely incredible as to the quality. And when they work on these things and they make them out of the loom, and they make them, they they are very strong, they're very sturdy, they are very durable. And uh, a uh, part of the attack was that it was always for slaves. No, it's a vocation. It's a vocation that people can be taught and they go out and make money. And where I saw it at work was in a prison. And they were teaching uh, the inmates a trade. And as a result, the rate of recidivism was about 80% instead of as high as it is, uh, was less than, 80% of them didn't come back. They never saw them again. I'll get it right here in a minute. <clears throat> but they were teaching them something useful to do when they got out to make money. So they weren't teaching them to be slaves. They were teaching them how to make something that they could sell and produce, and that's what they did. Now, this is a very similar type of thing. It's fascinating to watch them do this. <clears throat> But it's a tunic of checkered work and a turban. We see the turban up there on top of his head and a uh, sash. And the sash was used as a belt to kind of hold this all together because you can see the clothing is layered. I mean, there is a undergarment here. There is several things, so this belt is designed to keep it all together so it doesn't flop in the breeze too much. So... They, uh, and a turban and a sash, and they shall manufacture holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons. Okay, so he's saying, go into the best of Israel. I want you to find skilled workmen. I want you to find people that know what they're doing. I don't want novices in here just now learning the trade. I want people that know how to do this. And he is going to fill them. The Lord is going to empower them, is what it says. And that they are going to have actually a special insight into how to go about designing these. If you Google uh, the um, 
clothing of the high priest of Israel, you're going to get some pretty wide ranges of um, pictures that pop up there, just like this one. I've got this other one here, which is a different thing, different colors uh, that we have, different uh, levels of embroidery, as you can see. Which one's right? We don't know. We don't know. What we do know is that for that point in time, they were the best you could get. And that he gave the workmen the freedom to be able to do this, but he also superintended what they were, what they were doing. And it says that he may, this is uh, Aaron, may minister as a priest to me. And it says literally to serve it as priest for me. That's the literal rendering out of the Hebrew. To serve it, the it's the tabernacle. As priest, it's a plural, for me. And then verse 5 says, And they shall take the gold and the blue and the purple and the scarlet material and fine white linen. When you see the phrase fine linen used throughout this, this portion of Exodus, it's talking about the fine white linen that came out of Egypt. And it's been known for that since antiquity, since the time of the Exodus uh, out of Egypt, because they took a bunch of it with them. Now, <clears throat> again, I find it interesting, because some of the liberals want to say that, that there was just a handful of people walked out of Egypt, probably two or three dozen, walked out of Egypt, and they crossed the Sea of Reeds, which is about six inches deep, and it really wasn't that big a deal. It just got mythologized and turned into a big deal by the Jews. But how did they build this thing in the, in the desert with 36 people? Uh, they couldn't carry that much stuff out of Egypt to do it, and it wasn't there in the desert. It wasn't native to it. So it tells us there had to be a lot of them. When you can take up an offering and get 75 pounds of gold multiple times, that, <laughs> that tells me there was a lot of people walked out of there. And enough to even give an offering. There was a lot of people that walked out of there. And then to generate that much gold, silver, bronze, and uh, linen, and uh, all the curtains of the tabernacle, all that other stuff that we, that we saw. <clears throat> so, we've seen what before. Gold, blue, purple, and scarlet. We've seen that interwoven into the tabernacle. Those four colors are found in the tabernacle. So there's going to be some similarity in the things that they portray. When we start identifying the types, we're going to find some overlap here in the things they, sh they portray. And we should. We should expect to find that. Now, <clears throat> in verses 6 to 14 is the ephod. Verse 6 is the material for the ephod. And it says, they shall, also is not in there, they shall manufacture the ephod of gold. Now, this gold is not gold-colored material. Um, some people think it is. It's actually the way this construction is, it's gold. It's gold itself. The breastplate is of gold. And it'll be used for the various settings of the stones. <clears throat> so, as you can see here, it is made of something that these stones can be embedded in and attached to within settings. They, they translate it filigree, but within, within settings. And it says, an ephod of gold, and then a blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted white linen, because it's going to become a 
vest. It's going to become a breastplate of the high priest. The work of a skillful <coughs> workman. Now this is the word <coughs> koshep. K-O-S-H-E-B-H used 124 times. And it means to think or to plan. The King James Version likes to translate this word cunning. And, okay, it means to think or to plan, and it has contextual usage of it where people are really cunning in what they are thinking or planning. But this is the word that gets implied, that gets taught as a skillful workman, something that is um, uh, imputed. And uh, this same word, Koshev, was word used in Genesis 15:6, which says it was imputed to him righteousness. So this skillful workman is a person that can take what he understands and knows about how to work these things and impute it into this breastplate. And that's what it's trying to get across to us. <clears throat> and it says in verse 7, it shall have two shoulder pieces joined. This word is kabar. It was used 29 times. The same word was used back when we were looking at joining the curtains together. So the little clasp that were there, and it said that they were joined together, is the word kabar that was used to do that. And it says the two pieces joined to its ends, and <clears throat> that it may be joined. Uh, it says literally... Um, it says literally that it shall be for it to its two ends, uh, and it shall be securely joined. Now, that's terrible English. Uh, the Hebrew is just fine, though, so that's, that's the best way to look at it. So it's basically saying the straps of the vest were sewn together into one, and they were done quite securely. One of the things we're going to find about the way that the entire garb of the high priest is put together it is done very well and it is designed to be durable and it is going to last it says their garments didn't wear out for 40 years so this thing is going to last for 40 years out in the desert in some very harsh uh, a very harsh environment now the sash is the next thing in verse 8 and it says in the skillfully woven band I meant to bring that, I have a sample of that uh, cloth with me that they made into kind of a sash to do a graduation ceremony uh, when we were in Ghana, and it's a, a beautiful thing. I meant to bring it with me and forgot to get it out of the drawer tonight, so maybe I'll get it out and you'll have a, some idea of how nice, nicely done these things are. And it says, in the skillfully woven band which is on it shall be like its workmanship of the same material of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine twisted white linen. And he says, And you shall take, now this is 28.9, they're going to take from the offering. So somewhere in this offering was two onyx stones, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Now, engrave is the word patak, and it really means to open as a door, and then to turn loose what is on the inside, and they were literally to loose the names upon the stones. 
Now, that sounds weird to us, but that's what they were. And that, that came to mean engraved. So it's like the names on the stones are already there, but they had to turn them loose. And that's what the engraver did, was just turn loose what was already on the inside. And it's amazing how many artists throughout history and sculptors have said the same thing. They got a block of marble, and they just chipped off everything until they freed what uh, they were trying to trying to make. And that's how the, the sculptor worked. Maybe it came from thinking like this. They're just going to... They're going to engrave it, but what they're going to do is set free that which is already there. And see, that would that would even take us to the plan of God in eternity past that knew who these guys were going to be. Nothing's new to him. He's already got it worked out, so he knew the names of Jacob's sons before Jacob knew the name of his sons. He knew how many he would have before Jacob knew how many he would have. Jacob was probably wondering if he's ever going to stop having kids at one point in time so here are these 12 boys that came out and verse 10 says six of their names on the one stone now see these are on the shoulders of the of the priest six of the names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the literally the second stone the other stone according to their birth so here you have a little note on the first stone First stone. Now, see, that's this is the breastplate. We're going to go back here to this thing up here as the onyx stones, one on each shoulder. And then they're going to have the names of the tribes of Israel engraved on these two onyx stones. And one of them is going to have Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Those are the first four sons of Leah. So, and then the... the fifth and sixth born son was Dan and Naphtali and these are the two sons of Bilhah the maidservant of Rachel and then the second stone is going to have Gad and Asher now these two are the first two sons of Zilpah who was the maidservant of Leah and then um, Issachar and Zebulun which was Leah's fifth and sixth sons then Joseph and Benjamin, which is number 11 and 12, the sons of Rachel. So that's that's quite a story. I'm sure you all have been through multiple times when they couldn't have enough babies and Rachel couldn't have any babies and Rachel was upset instead of praying to God. Uh, guess what? Uh, hey, why don't you just take my maidservant? I guess they took a, took a cue from Abraham who decided that since Sarah was barren, he would send in Hagar... And the result was Ishmael, and they've been paying for that ever since. That's just a fact of a fact of life. But anyway, we know whose names were on which stones based on the order of birth. Now, in verse 11, how they were to be placed, he says, as a jeweler engraves. Now, this is an interesting word. Karash is a very general term. It is a fabricator of any kind of material. It could be used for a silversmith, a goldsmith. It could be used of those who work with precious stones. It, it looks at a, a craftsman, uh, and it's uh, as work of a craftsman of stone. This is kind of some would call him a mason, but masons usually deal with bricks and blocks and much bigger things. Masons don't normally deal with the 
precious stones, and that's more of the realm of a, a jeweler. Uh, as a jeweler engraves, and this word is an engraver's seal. So what he's saying here, because when you find repetition in the same word in the Hebrew, it's telling you it wants the best. He doesn't want some, some kid learning how to do this to make these stones. He wants somebody that already knows how to do it, and he wants that person making these stones. You shall engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. You shall manufacture them in filigree. And I just prefer to translate that settings because we don't normally think of, of um, filigree. It's not one of our common words. In settings of gold. Now, the, the whole word group here, it's a hafel, which... You don't have a lot of hafels in the whole Old Testament. Uh, there's plenty of cows and pls and nifels and pools, but the hafel is the passive voice of the hifel, which is a causative stem. And so it is, when you translated it all out, I translated it all out to be uh, causing to be circled by interwoven cloths of gold. So this is taking gold and gold strands and turning it into a weaving into a cloth. That's what it's trying to tell us. To be circled in interwoven cloths of gold. In verse 12, And you shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. Twelve tribes. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for a memorial. The word bear in the English is lift up. It is NASA. Well, yeah, you know, National Aeronautics and Space Administration just turns out to be a Hebrew word that means to lift up. I'm sure that had didn't pass anybody's thinking process whenever they decided to name our space group as NASA. But the word means very clearly to lift up. And it basically says, So Aaron shall lift up their names before Yahweh on his two shoulders for a memorial. So when Aaron is getting ready to do his service and go in before the Lord, he has lifted them up to put on this, these garments to begin with, and he's lifted them up before the Lord because he alone will go in to the Holy of Holies, to the Ark of the Covenant. So it's, it's really a beautiful picture of what the high priest does. And guess guess who else's names are written in heaven? That's going to get lifted up before the throne. You and I, as believers. That's another passage. So this is a picture of the, the uh, 12 tribes being lifted up before the Lord. And it says, And you shall manufacture settings of gold, literally, interwoven cloths of gold. So make these, and kind of it's kind of hard to see on different pictures. Basically glows up around the neck, so it's going to tie this thing onto the front. That's what is going to what is going to happen out of it. Back behind it, they're going to have the place for the Urim and the Thummim, which is a whole different uh, study. Uh, and the two chains of pure gold, you shall manufacture them of twisted cordage work, and you shall put 
Literally is the word give, not than. You shall give the corded change on the settings, on literally on the interwoven cloth. So, finally got to the summary. Now, the colors of the ephod represent Jesus Christ in hypostatic union as the high priest. Whenever we find these colors, well, we've established what they mean. Gold is a picture of deity. Silver is a picture of redemption. That's not in here. Blue is a picture of heaven. Scarlet is a picture of his work. And purple is a picture of his royalty. So this is all interwoven into this breastplate of, of the high priest. So the gold and blue refer to his entrance into the most holy place in heaven. Hebrews 9.24. That's what he is. That's, that's what he did. That's who he is. He is the high priest. And guess what the high priest is going to do? The high priest is a picture of Messiah, Jesus Christ. So he's a picture. And he's going to go in uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement beyond that inner veil into the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies. Now, <clears throat> the purple refers to his royalty as a priest. And his priesthood is different. But the symbolism here is designed to point to a, actually a future priesthood. It's going to point to a future priesthood, which is going to be after the order of Melchizedek. Because the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ is after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 verse 4 spells that out in various passages throughout the book of Hebrews. When you look at Hebrews 5, chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, five chapters in the book of Hebrews talk about the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's, that's quite a devoted section of scripture to say the least. Because anytime you got five chapters devoted to something tell us, tells us it's very, very important. The scarlet to his offering for sins also talked about and described in the book of Hebrews. And the white linen to his righteousness as high priest. Now in Hebrews 7 verse 26 just a sample of what these verses are about. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who did not need daily like these, those other high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. He took care of every sin when he offered up himself. So his purity, his... his uh, uh, lack of contamination if you will this white linen that's what that was about the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ the skill by which the garment was to be made refers to God's genius in making such a high priest for believers Hebrews 7:28. for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son with a capital S made perfect forever. He's talking about the hypostatic union, the perfection of the hypostatic union and how it maintained its perfection and now sets as a priest forever. Upon Christ's shoulders, when you start thinking about this is the high priest, stones mounted on his 
his shoulders, upon Christ's shoulders, which points us again to the burden he carried. What happened at the cross? Didn't he carry that crossbeam on his shoulders? Are the promises to Abraham and his descendants that are guaranteed by the cross? So the very location of where they are is a picture of what was placed on Christ's shoulders, the burden. Burden of what? Twelve tribes of Israel. What did he need to do with the twelve tribes of Israel? The twelve tribes needed to survive. Right? Because there are promises made to Abraham that encompass all of his descendants. They've yet to be fulfilled. So why did the devil go after him over the course of history? When we start looking back at the, they call them the seven major anti-Semitic <coughs> kingdoms that have existed, and it looks like clearly the seventh kingdom is starting to rear its head uh, with anti-Semitism, but the first one was Egypt. Egypt became that. Notice they were friends to begin with. They became that. What's next? Assyria. Egypt. Assyria. And then after Assyria, let's see what happened. Persia. Actually, Babylon. Came in, defeated the Assyrians in 705 B.C. Then the Persians came in. That's the book of Daniel, the writing on the wall. So you have Egypt, Assyria. Um, feels like I'm leaving one out here. Egypt, Assyria, uh, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Those are the seven. And the last one is the revived Roman Empire of Revelation 17. So it looks like it's all coming together again because <clears throat> have, can, you, can you imagine that we can actually get uh, much more anti-Jew well, it happened in the in the 40s under Hitler. We know it happened, but it's happening again now. And whenever you find uh, groups of people trying to support Israel's arch enemies who have vowed to destroy them at the first opportunity, and if you join up with those who are enemies of Israel, you make yourself an enemy of God, and it doesn't matter who you are. At any point in history, that is a bad decision. The, the sash held the ephod in place, portraying Jesus Christ's priesthood is forever. So it took that, the, the high priest of Israel had this breastplate. Hebrews 7.23, the former priest on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. So to keep the Levitical priesthood going, they, they had a whole lot of them because they kept dying. And it was all part of the plan. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. So holding this in place points at the permanency of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. The two stones represent Israel's release from slavery. See, because the word engrave really means to loose, to open the door. So that is a picture of the Jews being freed from, from slavery in fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Remember there's a promise, your descendants shall be oppressed and enslaved for 400 years, and after that they shall walk out. That's exactly what happened. In fact, it's recorded in Exodus 
that to the very day that the promise was made to Abraham, that's exactly what happened. The goal settings teach they're an integral part of the divine plan because gold looks at deity. Their position in the garment portrays their exalted position. Here they are on the shoulders. It's, it's a, a great place to be. The breastplate is right there, but these two stones, onyx stones, are on the shoulders. The stone position in the cloths of gold portray Christ's intercession for man, Hebrews 7.25. He says he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. So here is the the whole picture being laid out um, quite clearly of what Christ is doing for Israel and also for all mankind. But this, this has to be interpreted in light of the high priest of Israel. You have to be very careful when you go outside of Israel and go to the Gentiles and try to read the church in it and all this other stuff because that, that leads to mistakes. The chains represent the security of salvation based on Christ's intercessory role. From 1 John 2, 1, which says that he died for the sins of the whole world, the whole entire world. And the high priest lifting up the names refers to Jesus Christ lifting up the names of believers before the Father and the angels. Revelation 3.5 He overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. What, how do you overcome? Faith is a victory that overcomes the world. Also written by John. 1 John 5, verse 4 and 5. <clears throat> and I will not erase his name from the book of life. If you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not going to get erased. Now that's nice. There's a big book of life that was written before the foundation of the world that includes everybody who would ever live, all the humans that would ever live, and, and their names were written in it. There was also the Lamb's Book of Life, which is a different book, because you notice at the great white throne it says the books, plural, were open. It's not just one book. Now, on one set of books is the names of everybody who would ever believe. Another set of books is the names of everybody who would ever live. And if a person died in unbelief, they were erased from that book. Now, what happens when you open both books at the great white throne? They're the same. They balance. So that is uh, the, the amazing picture. And I will confess his name <clears throat> before my father and before his angels. So we're going to get quite an introduction in heaven, aren't we? It's kind of reminding of a graduation ceremony or exercise. And the, I, the one thing about a graduation ceremony, have you ever been to one with 2,000 people that graduating and they're all walking across the stave, stage and they're reading the names? You haven't been to one. Well, it's exciting because Joe, Frank, Bill, Jane, <laughs> it's just about that fast because they could be there for days. If they slowed down. But in eternity, how much time do we have? <laughs> See? So it's not going to be, they're not going to be hurrying to get done. Because there is no time pressure in eternity. So your name's going to get called in front of the Father and in front of the angels. That's, 
That's who you are. That's a special deal. It's a special graduation. I think we should view, view it accordingly. Now, verse 15 picks up <clears throat> the information on the breastplate. And he says, And you shall manufacture a breastplate of judgment. Uh, judgment is the word mishpat. Uh, I love the various words that are used to denote judgment. This this indicates that decisions will be made and decisions have been made. Now, whenever you, you put this whole package together, you have the Urim and Thummim on the inside, and that's what the Jews called on whenever they needed an answer. Do we go to battle or do we not go to battle? And the Urim and Thummim gave them the answers. Exactly how it did it, nobody knows. Some think that, well, you got these two stones, they take them out and look at them, one of them light, one's a yes stone, the other's a no stone, one lights up and the other one doesn't light up. Maybe, who knows? Because we're not told. What we do know is that through those two stones it become clear, became clear to the Jews what they were supposed to do. Now the Jews had a real tendency, like with Jeremiah, he didn't have the Urim and Thummim with him, but they asked him, Jeremiah, inquire of your God. This is the Jews that says, inquire of your God and see if we should go down to Egypt. And so Jeremiah went in front of his God, which should have been their God, and he asked them, and he said, no, don't go down to Egypt. So Jeremiah reports back to the Jews, and the next line is, so they packed up and went down to Egypt. So it is just as clear as can be. They're just as hard-headed as, as you can uh, imagine. <clears throat> you shall make a breastplate of judgment, the work of a skillful workman. Like the work of the ephod, you shall manufacture it. No shoddy materials, no shoddy labor. Of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet material, and fine twisted white linen, you shall manufacture it. And it shall be square, folded double. A span in length, and a span in width. So it was the, it was the same word actually, folded double, is the same word used to fold over the goat's hair curtains back in in chapter 26 so turn this this pouch into a square okay start it so because that made the pouch didn't it when it was folded double and it says and you shall mount on it four rows of stones this is the word eben the word for stone uh, used 26 times the first usage of this word and it's kind of interesting because the word row is a row like a fence. That's the type of row it is. Uh, <clears throat> a fence row. You know, kind of like they do at football games. A D and then a fence. And they've got somebody holding up the D and somebody holding up a piece of fence over there. This is a uh, fence. You shall mount on it four rows of stones. And the first row shall be a row of ruby, topaz, and emerald. Now, this is going from right to left. That's the way the Hebrew alphabet works, is from right to left. So that's where they would start. They wouldn't do it like we, we Gentiles do it, going from left to right. So it would 
that's the way the sequence would go. One, two, and three, and then drop down to the next row, four, five, and six. And <clears throat> there's argument over what kind of stones these are. Uh, what we do know is that when this was given to Moses, everybody knew what they were. That's what that's what we do know. But uh, one of them is, uh, uh, let's see, the the ruby uh, is also called a sardius, which is also called a cornelian. Now, have you gone into a uh, jewelry store and said, well, we have cornelian stones here? Nobody know what they are. There's another one that's uh, known as a carbuncle. I thought those were things on your feet that you couldn't quite get sanded off or whatever it was. But <clears throat> a ruby, a topaz, and an emerald. The second row, a turquoise. And literally, this is a garnet. That is uh, the one that is also called a carbuncle. So now, you, if you didn't learn anything else tonight, you learned that a carbuncle is a garnet. We have some kind of clue on that. And I'm looking at these these things. Whenever I see a, a garnet, it's red. They have a green, which is the, the color of an emerald here. So all these representations, you have to be careful and yet not too judgmental <laughs> because we don't really know what these stones were. Uh, <clears throat> a sapphire and a diamond. Now, the diamond, we got a pretty good idea of what that looks like. One of the world's most precious stones. It's actually a very common stone. And if anybody tries to sell you a perfect diamond, it's not. There is no such thing as a perfect diamond. It's called a cubic zirconia. And it's manufactured. They, they Diamonds, if you look at a diamond under a jeweler's loop, I actually took a course from... Um, uh, can't remember his name. He and his family's owned a jewelry store here forever. I took a gemstone course from him one time, and it was fascinating. And he passed around some nice gemstones, and he kept his eye on every one of them in that class too when he was when he was doing it. But he said you can look at these, and that's how they grade diamonds is based on the number of flaws that they find in them. And he said if you look at one and it doesn't have a flaw, then it's a cubic zirconia or it's glass. So it's going to have a flaw in it if it's a, if it's a diamond. So <clears throat> the sapphire and the diamond. Also, some of these stones, uh, like a sapphire, comes in many colors. Okay, emerald is primarily uh, green. Ruby is primarily a red, and that you can you can say the the uh, world-renowned rubies come from Burma. That's where they, they primarily come from. I was at a bazaar there one time, and, and they had some really nice stuff there. And they were, uh, they were uh, uh, Burmese rubies, and they were, they were very nice. But the, um, it says the third row, a jacinth. I haven't seen one of those for sale in a jewelry store anywhere in the world. A uh, barrel and an amethyst and the fourth row a barrel there it is again it's actually a chrysolite um, and an onyx that's the same stone like on top of the shoulders here that's number 11 and that child number that's child number 11 who's child number 11 who could that possibly be other than Joseph 
and uh, and uh, jasper stone. They shall, the, being interwoven with gold, shall be their setting. So that's how they get them to stick in here, and you can kind of see a filigree setting around the outside of these, trying to represent uh, what they're trying to do. But it is something that uh, uh, is is gold, and it's made to hold those stones. Because the last thing you want is a stone to fall off the breastplate of the high priest. Uh, it's kind of like losing a diamond out of a ring. You don't want it to happen. You want a setting that is strong enough that it's going to hold it. Verse 21, it says, The stone shall be according to the names of the sons of Israel. Twelve. According to their names, they shall be like the engravings of a seal. Now this looks either at a, a signet ring type of seal or a cylinder seal because they used both of them during this time. But it is something like the engravings of a seal, each according to his name, for the 12 tribes. Now, the breastplate design was to be like the ephod, portraying Messiah's righteousness, red, his origin, blue, royalty, purple, and work, scarlet. So this this breastplate's design was to, to do that. It was to be folded, resulting in a square. A span is about 9 inches, about half, half of a cubit. And from the Urim, which would be placed inside, came decisions that affected the twelve tribes, the Urim and Thummim. The four rows of three stones each portray the Trinity's role concerning Israel in each dispensation. Now see, the, when you find the number three, and it very clearly says the three stones on each row, four rows. The number three is a picture of the Trinity. The number four is a picture like you get with the northeast, south, and west. It's kind of a, and it's used to denote a dispensation. Now, I know scholars have argued over how many dispensations are there from the beginning of time. Yet, when, when there is a change of priesthood and necessity, there's a change of law. And dispensation in Ephesians translated frequently as stewardship means is oikonomos that means a law of the house so I believe it is looking very clearly at the law of the house based on the fact a priesthood has changed so what are the priesthoods the first one is the Gentiles age of the Gentiles family priesthood uh, oldest uh, gentleman in the place was the, was the priest Levitical priesthood, from Moses to day of Pentecost. The royal priesthood, from the day of Pentecost until the rapture, in which time Levitical priesthood will come back for seven years. And then the millennial priesthood, after the line of Zadok. So there are basically four dispensations that you find, and I think that's portrayed by these four rows that are found here. Now, the being set in woven gold cloth relates each tribe to the plan of God. Isn't that amazing? Gold is a picture of deity. So if this thing is wrapped in a gold around it to hold it in place, the, the portrait is that it is relating each tribe 
individually to the plan of God. Being square denotes that God's promises to his chosen people doesn't change in any dispensation. It's going to be the same in, in all the dispensations. The four corners uh, four corners of the earth, it's going to be the same no matter where they are on the planet. It has multiple meanings there. Being likened to fence post. Uh, that's that row. That word row is used to denote a fence. Denotes Israel's role as per the directive will of God, which is to protect the spread of God's plan and in a sense form a wall. They are the protectors. And where would one find that? Well, you track the word and let the word tell you. Ezekiel 22.30, a tremendous passage that says, And I search for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Ezekiel, an exilic prophet. What did he look for? He looked for a deliverer of Israel. They had him like the judges at one point in time. They had kings who followed after that. But by the time it came to destroy the southern kingdom, the Lord is saying, I was looking for somebody. Somebody that would stand in the gap here and put up a wall between what I was getting ready to do to the land of Israel. Daniel did it for a period of time. Did he not? Wasn't he making intercession for his nation whenever they came and arrested him because he was praying when he shouldn't have been praying? The Jews, the Jews fail this many times. Also from Ezekiel 13, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy and say to those who prophesy from their own inspiration, listen to the word of the Lord. Okay, so here, Ezekiel, Lord says, pay attention. I want you to prophesy against these false prophets. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, your prophets have been like foxes among ruins. You have not gone up into the breaches nor did you build a wall around the house of Israel to stand in the battle on the day of the Lord. You didn't do what you were supposed to do to protect your nation. They see falsehood and lying divination who are saying the Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them. Yet they hope for the fulfillment of their word. That's kind of like false prophets of the day, right? Do we have any false prophets of today? We call them weathermen. Now occasionally they get something close, but it just struck me as that's pretty close. It's not, I'm not saying we should take them out and stone them like they would have in Deuteronomy 13 and 18. But uh, sometimes when they say, we're going to bring you good weather this weekend, I'm going, yeah, you're not bringing anything this weekend, good, bad, or indifferent. Did you not see a false vision and speak a lying divination when you said the Lord declares? But it's not me who, who has spoken. It's not I who have spoken. So the Jews fail to protect their homeland many, many times. The stones were mounted in order of birth. 
which is the phrase according to their names. Being engraved denotes each tribe's continual existence in the plan of God. Being engraved, it's interesting, uh, engraved on that. No tribe will be totally wiped out. And that's something to consider. Some, like the tribe of Dan, got real close. Because if you read ahead, you go to Revelation 7, and you read the, the 144,000, the 12,000 male virgin Jews from every tribe of Israel, and you read through there, and you go, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, time out, that's half-tribes of Joseph. Where is Dan? Dan is missing out of there. And some people have said that Dan got eliminated, that they got removed. And uh, because of their unbelief, they had all kinds of problems throughout their history, worshipped false gods, followed followed idols. They did all kinds of bad stuff. Some people said God took them away. But just keep reading in the end of Ezekiel 40 to 48, when they set up the Millennial Temple, guess who's got a spot in the Millennium? Dan. They just didn't have 12,000 male virgin Jews right after the rapture. They were very uh, scarce as hen's teeth, if you want to say that. They, they had gotten down, but they were not eliminated because part of the promises to Abraham and his descendants and other promises to Israel along the way, the Lord's going to bring them, bring them all through it. The value of the gems, all these are considered as valuable gemstones denotes the value of, of each tribe. Each one of them is important in the eyes of God. So, <clears throat> anyway, that's that's where we got to tonight. We're going to start keep on going at the cords and different parts of the, the garb of the high priest, get more description of it, but it kind of starts with, you know, this is about, there's a security for Israel. Now, individually, there's not a security because they're a Jew. Because they still have to believe after the pattern of Abraham, Genesis 15:6. But as far as that tribe goes, there is a security that those tribes are going to make it all the way through. And at the second advent, when the Lord destroys all of his enemies, there's going to be representatives of all 12 of those tribes that are going to be there as sheep, ready to enter the millennial kingdom. And that is just a picture of nothing but God's protection. How you going to take 144,000 people, by the way? They get, <clears throat> they get called and ordained at the outset of the tribulation. And you read through everything that happens in the tribulation. You read through everything that happens in the tribulation. Stars falling out of heaven. Earthquakes that destroys all the islands and all that. And you get 144,000 in Revelation 14, standing with the Lord on Mount Zion. Only by a divine hand can you take a group of that size facing those kind of dangers and all of them be protected. Now, has God got the ability to do it? Absolutely. And I think he's showing off a little bit, and I look forward to it. Let's pray. Father, thank you again. For your love, your mercy, your grace, all your blessings, all your tests. We thank you for your word and we thank you for the beauty of your word. And Father, we uh, uh, we can't understand every little part of this and we know that. But Father, what we do understand 
is truly awe-inspiring, and we thank you for it. I ask you to be with us, lead us, and guide us, and as we continue to serve you, in Jesus' name, amen.